Welcome to After Hours at the Radio Book Club, which is a podcast produced by KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. We're here today live at the bookstore with Finn Murphy, author of Rocky Mountain High, A Tale of Boom and Bust in the New Wild West, which chronicles his adventures as a hemp farmer didn't quite work out tune into the radio version of this show to hear the full story but right now we're going to go to audience questions my co-host arson kashkashian why don't you kick us off who what's the first question from the audience well the first question relates to one of the things we talked about in the radio interview which is about the banking in hemp and so since since hemp is legally as uh, federal legal, <laughs> let me start this again since hemp is legal federally why can't the banks uh you know be used like you know they, they should have the green light at this point but it still doesn't work it should be and here's here's the rub so anything so cannabis and cannabis is a umbrella term for the hemp plant and the marijuana plant so they're both the same plant the difference between industrial hemp and marijuana is uh, industrial hemp can't be more than 0.3% THC, which is the stuff that gets you high. Anything under 0.3% then is industrial hemp. So uh, while industrial hemp is federally illegal under the far USDA Farm Bill, marijuana is still a Schedule One narcotic under the uh, other laws from a, another federal agency. So you have this schizophrenia within the United States government and you have these massive fights all the time. The DEA is fighting the USDA all the time about hemp limits and about the, this kind of stuff. And then you have federally, um, you have the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation that insures bank deposits. And if you have a federally chartered bank, which all of them have FDIC insurance, none of them will have, uh, none of them will take uh, hemp or marijuana accounts because they're afraid of getting tainted with that. That has changed a little bit now. Some banks understand that industrial hemp is different than marijuana, but most of your other banks still won't go near it because they don't want to get all the fines from uh, from one federal regulatory agency for dealing with a Schedule One federal narcotic. And you don't have any legal resource uh, you can say, I'm a, I'm a legal business. Like you, There's nothing you can do to compel a bank to serve you. No. There's nothing any of us can do to get a bank to serve us in any way, even outside of the hemp industry. <laughs> well, you describe this thing, and I've, I've heard this from others in the legal hemp and marijuana uh, spaces of paying your taxes they have to pay all the tax in cash almost because they they have no access to banking you can't write a check from a business account and so you've all these brinks trucks you know who are back and forth to all the marijuana businesses it's so dangerous as well when you have such a cash-based economy i mean you're a magnet then and a target for so much crime oh and yeah in denver the uh um the hemp uh, not the hemp the uh, dispensaries are getting burgled all the time I mean, the the numbers are just through the roof. And then just, you know, moving from, uh, you know, when you close your business at night, it's dangerous. And then, as you say, you got to hire a big brings truck to pay your taxes and you have to have a giant safe in your in your building. Um, 
when Pierce and I, we took a couple days off when all this was happening, we went to the giant um, hemp convention in Las Vegas. And this is huge. There's like 30,000 30, people there. And, you know, the big giant convention center. And uh, it, it wasn't any, there wasn't any stoners there. Uh, there was a lot of PhDs with biochemistry there telling you that the, here's the extraction thing and it looks just like an oil refinery because actually extracting oil from hemp is an oil refinery and it's not quite as big, but they're damn big. Uh, and then you had the safe companies like Chubb, uh, you know, they have these giant safes like 12 feet high, you know, you have to get a crane to move it in. Uh, yeah, is uh, is an eye opener. So somebody wants to know, what are you growing on your farm now? Hey, cow food. That's it. So when we were looking at hemp after the, uh, when this, in this book here, we were talking about $350 a pound for uh, hemp. Um, I was looking at making between eighty-five dollars and $100,000 an acre in hemp. And you could read that anywhere. You can still read it, actually. Um, so now I make about $42 an acre with my cows or the cows that live there. So that's a long way from 85,000. So you have cows on the farm, you have any other animals? Uh, we rescued uh, two therapy miniature horses named Sadie and Ellie. They're there, uh, they don't have a revenue stream. Uh, <laughs> can't monetize them now. No, you can't monetize them, I, you know, not really a petting zoo maybe. Uh, Six chickens, oh, five chickens. We lost one chicken the other day. Um, a blue healer named Charlie, and that's all for the livestock. You keep those chickens penned up, though, because I, I just got back from a trip to Hawaii, the island of Kauai, and there's wild chickens everywhere, and so I don't want to hear anything about chickens. And because every morning at five and then six and then at seven, no matter what time you try to sleep through, you hear, er, 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 er. So you hear that every day on your farm? Those are the male chickens. Yes, the roosters. Yes. I heard that Hawaii is awash in feral chickens. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. I'm, 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 I couldn't sleep in. Past, I'm on vacation for the first time since the pandemic, and I can't sleep past 530 in the morning. We don't have male chickens. All right. You're no. smart. Yeah. No, we just let them out. We let them out first thing in the morning. They run around all the property, and uh, they're very happy. Do you like the farming lifestyle? Partially, you really are, you know, you're, 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 uh, you know, you're nailed down to the land, you know, there's not, you know, you got to look at the cows every day. You got to feed the horses every day. Um, if you're ever going to go anywhere, you got to pay attention. I mean, you have to have it, you got to get covered. And that's a totally different thing from just turning the keys in the truck and go drive 3000 miles. And all the stuff is in my sleeper. It's a, it's a much more complicated kind of life in certain ways. Well, that's a great segue to another question. Uh, somebody says, loved the long haul, your previous book. Are you going back to trucking? Never. Never unless things get really bad. Um, no, I'm done. I still have my CDLA driver's license. Um, but I'll touch on this real quick. I lost my nerve driving the big truck as the older I got and driving, especially here, this is about the worst place in the, in the United States to drive. If you're taking 70 going west, you've got uh, Genesee Hill and then you've got Floyd Hill, then you've got Vail Pass, then you've got Glenwood Canyon. It's like the worst 125 miles in the, in the universe. 
Um, going either way, it's never, it's terrible. And then if you're in the ice and snow, and I just, I couldn't take it anymore. I just, just started freezing up and couldn't do it at night and couldn't do it when the weather was bad. And the weather's always bad up there. Anyway, you see those, I mean, anybody who's done 70, you've seen the trucks there coming down from the tunnel on, on the side of the road, just laying over. Yeah. It's, I mean, it happens literally almost every day. Well, the long haul made me a little terrified to drive those roads because you talked about how, you know, if a tire blows out, like if you're a car and you're next to a truck, anything can happen, you know? And I, so I was thinking about that. So now I'm like, I'm kind of crazy. I kind of creep up to the truck and then I floor it and I get past there as fast as I possibly can. That's a good, that's the way to do it. <laughs> well, I should have you tell my wife that, but um, she doesn't always appreciate that strategy. But I have a question here. This, this goes, uh, when you lived in Nantucket, how did you become police airport commissioner? I don't know where that came from, but it, no, it's true. Um, I lived on Nantucket Island for 20 years. That's where I ran a, a textile business, and uh, I, ran a, uh, I ran for public office. And we've got this 18th century vestigial government structure there uh, where you have, uh, you don't have a mayor, you have, a, it was called the, uh, you were called a selectman. You might remember from Jaws, you know, the board of selectmen guy that didn't want to have the beach closed because of, of the money. Uh, it's probably the only way anybody from Colorado would ever hear the term board of selectmen. So I ran for selectman and, and then won, and then I was elected chairman, and then I was also a county commissioner, chairman of the county commissioners in Nantucket as well. And then I, I had every single job, basically. I mean, it's not a big place. <laughs> So I was the airport commissioner, I was the police commissioner, uh, chairman of the board of commissioners, and, and a selectman. So I'm going to guess you didn't have to deal with a rampaging shark, but what was the most difficult thing you had to deal with as a selectman? Oh, rampaging citizens. <laughs> so, uh, Nantucket is a wonderful place. But it is hyper-democratic. And that's, that's a, something I've noticed that's different in Colorado, too, although Boulder is kind of hyper-democratic, too. But when I was looking at these farmers and trying to get these farmers to get together and say, you know, we can do stuff, you know, it's getting it's getting 96 Boulder County farmers. And then we can go to a bank and say, there's 96 accounts we want to open. You know, each one of these is a million dollar business, you know, now say no. Um, but no, there, there's there's not even though you have this myth of the individualist in the Wild West there. I, just, I don't get the same feeling that I get in the in New England about the agency an individual might have with their local government. And uh, it could be a real pain in the neck because, you know, you go to the King Supers in Nantucket and you're getting you know, picking out an avocado and some citizen will walk right up to you and say, are you crazy? That's such a stupid idea. So, you know, hyper-democracy can be, can be good, um, but just not when you're shopping for avocados. Now, you mentioned that's when you were running your textile business. One of the many businesses you've run, so somebody asks, tell us about some of your other businesses. Uh, okay. So my, okay, I had a poster business when I was in college, which I used to sell posters of uh, famous people to independent bookstores back when you had independent bookstores on every block of the, of the country. Uh, I did, uh, I was a contractor for a national van line as a driver. I imported uh, Irish sweaters from Ireland. 
I uh, traded textiles in Scotland and Italy. I brought in, I had uh, contracts with uh, cashmere bills in Europe and brought cashmere sweaters into the US. Uh, I did uh, prairie dog management in Boulder County. Wow. I'm going to be careful about that one. Nobody cares about the other stuff, but you start talking prairie dog management. Um, you're was that not relocation? Hmm? Yeah. Was relocation part of the management? You see, the trouble with relocation is you have to find somebody who wants all those prairie dogs. Hey, you got a farm. I heard there's a farm in Boulder County. It's got 36 acres and only a couple of horses. <laughs> Another business. Another business. No, won't be that one. <laughs> I understand that there's a whole bunch of uh, there's there, there's two there's two opinions about prairie dogs and I, I respect both sides, um, but if you're a property owner and uh, trying to regenerate your land and make soil and sequester carbon, you don't want to have prairie dogs. I want you to expand a little bit more in cashmere because when we spoke to you about the long haul and you you mentioned uh, your your work in cashmere and I was fascinated because it almost reminds me. A little bit in terms of hemp, in terms of it, it's so specialized. It's it's almost sounds like a boom as well. I know there have been cashmere booms, but to actually have real cashmere, it's from a very specific place, from a very specific animal. Talk a little bit about that because I just found that fascinating. Yeah, that's I never I never made that connection, but yes, I've been in natural fibers my whole life. Yeah, um, cashmere comes from the cashmere goat, which only lives in Mongolia. So the reason that Scotland and Italy became cashmere uh, manufacturers was they had the machinery. They invented the machinery to separate the real soft stuff from the from the coarse hairs. So, but all the cashmere, even today, all comes from Mongolia because there's environmental factors that make the goats have that kind of really soft hair, and you can't get it growing anywhere else. And is it highly regulated that you can't just slap? A cashmere label on a sweater where it could be angora or something else you know for or make dilute the cashmere with other textiles i mean how regulated is it uh it is regulated in statute and it is violated routinely by the chinese and there's probably very little chance that that cashmere sweater that you buy um at some department store or something for 60 or $70 is actually cashmere. Um, it's, it's sort of the same thing that happened with CBD. So if you, you know, buy a CBD drop and it says, you know, a 30 milliliter bottle and it's got XX milligrams and it's got full terpenes and all this stuff, uh, there's no regular, again, it's statutorily regulated, but there's nobody who's watching. Um, most of the CBD droppers, stuff you see in the droppers is, is bogus junk. But if you do want to buy CBD, I know uh, there's two really great growers in, uh, in Boulder, who uh, more than two actually, who actually from seed to harvest to dropper, who do the right thing. But there's, it's hard to do the right thing because it's a race to the bottom and everything gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Because if you're not actually putting in CBD, uh, really make, cuts your costs. I mean, if you have bogus CBD, you don't have anything. But if you have like uh, a cashmere sweater cut with some Angora, you still have a sweater. So you're ahead. Good point. That's right. <laughs> you might have quite a nice sweater. You might. <clears throat> right. The color could be great or, or all that. Yeah. 
So I'm going to change the topic because I got a couple questions left, and I, I'm not sure where this question came from. Maybe there, maybe you'll know. What is your preferred breakfast? My preferred breakfast these days is uh, I take an avocado, open it, open it up, chop it up, and then fry two eggs from the chickens and toss them on top of the avocado with a little pepper and lemon juice. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. So what's next? Not not from breakfast, not lunch, but, but in general, <laughs> what's that? What's dessert? <laughs> so I was supposed to write a book about cashmere. Um, this I was, know I've been waiting yes. on us. So I so I got a book contract from Norton to write a book about cashmere in 2018 um, because they were so happy with the first book. And I called them up and I said, uh, "I'm not writing a book on cashmere." And they said, "Well, why is that?" And I said, "Because I'm going to make so much damn money in the hemp business, so much more money that I can make writing a book, that I'm never going to come back to you guys ever again because I'm going to have so much money." I'm going to be flying to New York in my private jet to tell you I'm not writing your book. Um, and then about uh, a year and a half later, I picked up the phone and said, uh, you remember that about me not writing that book? And they said, who's this? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, uh, I got some good news and some bad news. I said, the, the good news is uh, I'm ready to write a book, but it won't be about cashmere. I'd like to write a book about how I really messed up in the hemp in the hemp industry, and there was a, such a great publisher. They just said, "Okay, well, you better do that one, and you better do it quickly." So here we are. So the long haul must have been gestating for years and years and years because you had driven a while ago, and this book was like almost an instant turnaround. What what was the difference in writing those two books? You know, going back much further for long haul and writing like so immediate with this. Well, how'd that feel to you as a writer? Yeah, I was really under, uh, I was running under a, a really fast deadline. Um, and I actually, I like that a lot. Um, I don't seem to have a problem getting content. Um, I, getting it down on paper is not, not difficult. And, you know, Norton wanted, they wanted 75,000 words. They wanted 220 pages. They're very clear about that. Um, so when I first, and I first, for this book, when I started putting it down, I had about probably 130,000 words and then I have to start cleaning it up. Um, but so many things happened during this hemp thing and so much, so much of it was so exciting and so much of it was so much fun and it was so recent. It wasn't, it wasn't difficult at all. Okay. So somebody wants to know of all the places you've seen and been, why Boulder or in fact, why Colorado? Oh, I could go on for this one. So 20 years driving around the United States as a mover here. So I'm not driving from terminal to terminal. I'm driving to people's houses. I'm driving into towns. I moved over f almost 4,000 families. So that's 4,000 places that I've been to. And mostly, uh, so in towns, in villages, in cities, all over the country. And if you read the long haul, you already know this. But if you've read it, but if you don't know, if you don't haven't read the long haul, please do. They've got copies here at the Boulder Bookstore. Um, most of the uh, America has been homogenized to the point where it's very difficult to find a different place that looks any different than any other place, uh, especially on the outskirts of town where they've denuded the core district and put all the big boxes who wire transfer all their money to Bentonville, Arkansas, or 
San Jose or something every day instead of leaving the money in the community. Uh, Boulder is one of the few small cities left in the United States that hasn't been completely homogenized. And because I have uh, seen them all, when I decided it was time to move away from Nantucket, and Nantucket Island is another place that hasn't been completely homogenized. And uh, I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, which has now been completely homogenized from, uh, from a lack of, uh, um, let's just say it's all rich people. Um, as I say in this book, I said I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut before it was overrun by the hedge fund guys, and then I moved to Nantucket before it was overrun by the hedge fund guys, and now I moved to Boulder while it's being overrun by the hedge fund guys. So <laughs> the Jason. I'm not sure if I'm the canary in the coal mine or, or whatever, but I'm not a hedge fund guy. <laughs> well, somebody wants to know about your experience with Ignite. Oh, Ignite Adaptive Sports. That must be you, Grace. Hello, Grace. Hi, Del. Ignite Adaptive Sports, if you guys don't know, it is an adaptive ski school uh, at Eldora Mountain. And we teach, uh, snow, we give snow sport opportunities to people with disabilities. Uh, we've been there 50 years, believe it or not. You might have seen, if you ski up there, you might have seen us in the green jackets. It's a volunteer organization. We have 250 volunteers up there. And we do programs with uh, wounded veterans and uh, children with various disabilities, um, developmental, physical, or whatever. We, uh, yeah, it's a great thing. I've, I've been volunteering there for 15 years. So yes, I'm still at Ignite. And where are you? You need to be at Ignite. <laughs> Dell was an instructor at Ignite, and Grace is going to be an instructor at Ignite, right? Oh, okay. What future business enterprises do you think await Finn Murphy, or are you just going to are you out to pasture literally and figuratively on your farm in Longmont? I don't know. I might be out to pasture, but it depends. If somebody got it, somebody got an idea like hemp that just can't miss. I got a bridge. <laughs> I got a bridge. I can sell you. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you you would be. You think this experience? What well, I guess? What have you learned from this experience about yourself, and what what knowledge from this experience would you take before you entered a new experience? I think the knowledge I would take from myself is uh, I can probably talk myself into anything and give a whole bunch of really objective reasons um, that aren't true. <laughs> And we'd be able to guard against that in the future, or is that just the way it is, and you're going to go with it? I'm getting better. This was a yeah. This was a big learning thing. So if you were wondering, um, you know, I'm going into the bank, taking out ten thousand dollars a day. Maybe maybe a question that might have occurred to some of you is, well, where's that ten thousand dollars a day coming from? It was coming from my uh, individual retirement account. It was coming from my IRA. So I took it. I just wiped the whole thing out. And uh, that's where the money came from. Well, you have to then have some sort of money making, whether it's a job or whether. Well, I won't be driving a truck. I could. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not. You know, I was a truck driver for 20 years. I don't. I don't have any problem with. Uh, you know, my status, of, my social status of any employment. I mean, anybody who works. I mean, I think that's respectful. I could see myself telling you. You know, I could have an orange vest on and telling you the appliances are in aisle 37. 
Well, to be decided, we shall see. And uh, any plans for another book? Or is the Kashmir book ever coming out? Yes. Kashmir book is in the works. I won't have to ask any questions in that interview. Because maybe you'll just I'm take over. I'm fascinated, absolutely fascinated by it. Anyway, looking forward to it. You did promise that book, so I'm glad it's coming. And it don't is coming. cut it down. If you got, if you have three hundred thousand words, you just tell Norton. I know a reader who will read three hundred thousand words about cashmere. <laughs> <laughs> well, Finn Murphy has been our guest for After Hours at the Radio Book Club, a podcast which is a production of KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. Finn's latest book, Rocky Mountain High: A Tale of Boom and Bust in the New Wild West. For KGNU, I'm Maeve Conran. As always, Arson Kashkashian, my co-host. Thanks, Arson. Thank you, Maeve. Okay.